Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Thinking Commercially, the business podcast with me, Ben Triggs, and the wonderful and knowledgeable Chris Stokes. Glad you can join us. We've got some fantastic topics to cover in this episode, including the energy crisis, bills are going up, and how do we get more supply of green energy? The global agreement on corporation tax, job vacancies, now they're at a 20-year high in the UK. And finally, we'll do some top commercial awareness tips for students doing applications right now, and also young professionals making their way in the business world. All of this and more in this episode. Hello there, Chris. How are you doing this kind of slightly chilly um, October day? How are you doing? How are you feeling? How's your last month been? Yeah, it's been tremendous, but you're right. Uh, uh, we're in we're in autumn. Winter is almost upon us, um, um, which makes actually our first topic quite quite relevant, really. But uh, but no, otherwise all good. Perfect, good stuff. And yes, um, we are definitely changing um, seasons, but hopefully we can warm you up with a little bit of uh, commercial awareness uh, this month. Um, if you are a seasoned listener, you'll know that we cover three stories, uh, core stories or key stories over the last month and look at general trends around them in the business world to help you become commercially aware. Start really analyzing the business world around you. It's for students, it's for graduates, for people that are starting their role as young professionals and anyone that has got a keen interest in business. If you are new to this, you might have come from the Bright Networks Upskilling Month. We're doing that all um, October. Um, and there will be some application advice around commercial awareness right at the end of the podcast. So as uh, other podcasts are doing sort of Halloween um, uh, specials and stuff like that, we're doing very much an application. Or if you start your new job special, it might not have quite the same ring to it, um, but you will be upskilled over the next 45, 50 minutes. Chris, are you ready to get started? Absolutely, Ben. Amazing. Let's crack on with our first story. So the first story that we're going to cover on this month's episode is something that you would be reading about, you'll know about, is the gas electric bill rise, but in effect, the energy crisis that the UK and Europe and a lot of the world are currently experiencing. It's obviously got a lot of ramifications for um, customers, for people living in their homes, for businesses, for economies, for inflation. Obviously, prices are going to rise if we're spending more on, uh, on our energy bills. Um, but you might have seen that I think 16 energy companies, small energy companies have gone bust in the last few months um, that serve over 1.5 million customers. And I think it is the price of oil, coal and gas has increased about 100%. So in effect, it's doubled since the time, since about what, you know, four or five weeks ago, which is hugely, hugely uh, damaging um, in a lot of ways for people and business. Um, but we want to unearth it a bit and talk about that business side of it, but also transition into a bit of a conversation around uh, fossil fuels, dirty energy, and how we transition in the best possible way to cleaner energy as well. So, Chris, the first thing that I want to ask you on this story is well, what's going on here? Why are we struggling to get the supply at the moment? Well, I, I think energy is one of those areas where it, it, everything is connected globally. And... Uh, 
certainly the pandemic has had an impact. And, and in the things that you and I discuss, Ben, the pandemic is going to continue to, to be a reason for why things are. But uh, production was cut back during the pandemic because there was a lack of demand. Because the thing about energy is uh, you, you, you can store it, but there's a limit to the amount of storage there is. So generally, if it's not being used, then it's not going to be produced. So during the pandemic, it was cut back. Uh, and now, of course, there's a ramp up in demand because uh, post-pandemic, or we hope post-pandemic, um, everything is getting back into gear and that, that is causing a, a global shortage. And increasingly, when it comes to energy, the country to look at is, uh, is China. Uh, and, and China is really struggling at the moment. Um, it's still the case that uh, more than half the country's electricity comes from coal. But coal production has been hit by new safety checks at mines, stricter environmental rules, and also torrential flooding, uh, which has really affected coal production um, across China, but in particular in the uh, Shangji province, which produces about 30% of China's coal. And so across China, at least 20 provinces have had power outages and closed factories, and that's having knock-on effects to the supply of, of goods around the world. But this certainly has driven coal prices up markedly. So what, what we're suffering from in the UK is very much the result of what is happening globally. Yeah, completely agree. And these energy companies that I spoke about, these 16 firms that have gone out of business, and I think um, one of the government secretaries recently said that he expects potentially more to go out of business um, as well. Um, these companies are struggling because there are caps set on how much uh, they can charge um, consumers like me and you for their household bills. Um, but obviously, they're having to pay an awful lot more to get the supply of energy that they need to fulfill the contracts that they have with both businesses and also um, people's homes um, as well. But Chris, what I want to ask with that, obviously with all these businesses going out of business because they can't pass on the full extra cost, obviously they can pass on some of the extra cost, but not the full extra cost to customers and businesses that use electricity, gas. Does this suggest that the market is broken or should the government be doing something to... Um, allow companies to push up prices at this time? Well, in a funny sort of way, businesses going bust is actually an indication of the market doing what it should be doing. I, I think that this, this is an area where scale really helps. If you're a large energy producer, then you're, you're used to having to uh, cope with changes in price in the wholesale market where you buy and working to caps on the retail side to, to which you sell. But often it's these big energy companies that have got the resources to, to, to bridge the gap between the two. And, for example, to hedge, to buy energy forward or to take out derivatives contracts that protect them from large increases in, in wholesale um, costs. But um, in terms of companies going bust, in a sense, that is a sign of the market doing what it should be doing, which is weaker operators uh, should go to the wall. Um, so, no, I would say, actually, I know it doesn't feel like it, uh, and one wouldn't want, want businesses to go bust or their customers to suffer as a result. But you could say, no, actually, it's a sign of the market doing what it should be doing. Okay. So one of the things that is always talked about um, in this is that 
obviously energy and a lot of um, sectors similar to it, especially around um, household uh, household bills and stuff like that used to be um, public, so government run. Um, it was decided that that was inefficient and didn't give the best value to the customer, to businesses that use it. Um, so does this actually highlight that the privatization might have gone wrong or that there's challenges around the privatization of things like energy when ultimately they're selling, all businesses are selling exactly the same product? Well, it's interesting. I'm, I'm of an age where I can remember when these things were, were not privatized, when they were very much in, in the public sector and public ownership. And the one disadvantage of public ownership is that it does mean that industries tend to get starved of investment because government has got so many short-term demands on its limited cash, which, as we've discussed previously, government only has two sources of access to money. One is taxing its citizens and the other is borrowing. So government is always, is always strapped for cash. And so sectors that require long-term investment, that long-term investment tends to be put off because as long as they continue doing what they, they, they should be doing, then the investment side uh, uh, ten, tends to suffer. So what privatization had the effect of doing was actually bringing a lot of private capital into industries like uh, water, energy, utilities, railways. And that investment was crucial to bring the stock, if you like, to, to bring the plant and machinery up, up to standard so that it could become more efficient, so that actually the prices that would be charged would, would, would be reduced. And so that's what brought all sorts of small market entrants into the uh, energy business. Because in a sense, if you're an intermediary between suppliers of the of of the commodity and the people who buy it you don't need a lot yourself to set up in business and there were stories of several energy companies starting from the same residential address so a lot of these energy companies were really quite 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 small all trying to get a foothold in in this business now that we've had this enormous private sector investment in uh, energy and utilities there there is a case for saying that actually we should begin to question whether they need to remain in the private sector. And certainly with the railways, uh, parts of the railway network have, have, have been uh, taken back into public ownership. And I, I personally have always had a problem with the fact that um, the, the energy that comes into your house is the same, regardless of who the supplier is. So in a sense, it's quite an artificial creation of competition but necessary in order for there to be uh, competition over prices, for example. But there again, you see the price cap imposed uh, effectively by, by the government is possibly an indication that competition in this sector can only ever be artificial. Earlier uh, this week, um, Boris Johnson set out kind of his plan um, to uh, reach net zero emissions by 20. 50. Um, and actually, over the next um, nine years till 2030, talking of private investment, looking to leverage up to 90 million of private investment, support uh, almost half a million, sort of, he said, well paid jobs or skilled jobs. Um, at the moment, does the energy crisis or part of the reason for the energy crisis um, boil down to the fact that there's been a little bit of a lack of investment? Um, in the kind of green energy or clean energy 
um, sector. And as we're moving away from fossil fuels like coal that we use to create energy, um, we haven't quite got the balance right yet. So maybe the intentions are better than the actual actions. I, I think that's exactly right, Ben, because the, the, what one's, one tends to think, especially with energy, that it's a matter of flicking a switch to go from fossil fuels to clean energy. And, and actually, it's not. Um, there has been a, a lot of investment going into green forms of energy, but they do take time to come on stream and become profitable. And in the meantime, there's been a lot of criticism of fossil fuel producers for very good reason, but, but they themselves have uh, been cutting investment in fossil fuels. Well, when in fact, over the next few years, at any rate, we will need uh, fossil fuels to, to, to power the world, as it were. I mean, interestingly, I, I mentioned China at the outset, and, and uh, uh, China has uh, promised that it'll be carbon neutral by 2060. And a lot of the energy shortage in the provinces has coincided with pressure from Beijing on the regions to reduce their, their emissions um, and as a, as a result, and because of price caps there, like ours, um, a lot of energy producers have actually um, cut back on their energy production, ca causing blackouts for home and factories to close. So I, I think what we have to realize is that we're in a period of transition. And of course, it's coincided with the pandemic and uh, the fallout from the pandemic, all, all of things, all of these things make it a lot trickier. And we're in kind of, if you like, uh, a perfect storm at the moment. Amazing. And I think for people listening to this, thinking about their commercial awareness, thinking all of this is about household gas, it's all about fossil fuel stuff that maybe I'm not going to be into if I'm going to a finance role, a law role, whatever it might be. But as more and more investment goes in this market, there's going to be more and more professional services involved in it. And Morgan Stanley were commenting around the clean hydrogen market and about how they predict there'll be a five-fold increase in investment um, over the next um, couple of decades as well. And so lots of companies will be A, involved, but all B, speculating and analysing data at the moment um, to try and get kind of ahead of the game and show their commitment to um, you know, green energy and the environmental side of things, but also how they will be involved potentially in the future. What's your thought of that, Chris? I'm absolutely right. There's enormous investor appetite for this. I mean, one of the questions I'm often asked is, uh, you know, is big business interested in this? And the answer is absolutely it is because uh, pension funds that provide pensions for decades to come, businesses that want uh, uh, customers for decades to come, they, they know that this makes sense from a business point of view, quite quite apart from a, a climate change and protecting the planet point of view, it makes good business. And just as an indication, there's a Danish company, energy company, that uh, switched from being a, a traditional energy producer to focusing on wind farms. And it's been one of the best performing stocks uh, on the Danish stock exchange. So uh, there is real popularity amongst investors for this. And this is part of their overall um, ESG move to focus on ensuring that the businesses that they invest in are, are themselves compliant in many areas, in, including climate change. So there, there's a real will, I feel, uh, for clean energy to, uh, to, to, to take center stage. It's all really interesting stuff, Chris, but for this week, we are going to leave it there and move on to our second story. 
For the second story this week, we are heading back to one of our evergreen and favourite topics in taxation. Um, If you've listened to some of the episodes in the first series, we've covered tax from a number of different angles. But something quite historic has happened actually in the last couple of weeks, um, which we want to give a bit of comment about. But we think it's super important for commercial awareness. You may have seen the news that 136 countries have agreed on a minimum rate of 15% for their corporation tax. Ultimately, this is in a bid to stop tax havens, which um, through the Pandora Papers, Panama Papers, you would have heard lots about, um, but also encourage big corporations to pay tax in the countries they do business in, rather than trying to uh, declare profits in certain jurisdictions which have low taxation and therefore um, therefore not paying probably the amount of tax they should be paying in certain countries which have higher corporation tax. Um, yeah, really big, big thing to, to happen, really exciting thing in the, the tax world as the tax world goes, um, but also good to see in a time of uh, probably a lot of countries being a little bit more protectionist, also being slightly suspicious um, of each other. China and America is just one example of that. Um, it's good to see that uh, cooperation on a, uh, a global financial sort of initiative. So, Chris, I might have covered this a little bit more, but why is this significant for you? Um, well, well, I think it's significant from two points of view. First of all, we, we've reached a point where there are significant major digital virtual businesses now uh, around the world. And as you said, Ben, they can locate themselves wherever they like because they, they, they don't have traditional plant and equipment as traditional businesses do. And so what they do is they, they arbitrage, as it's called, between different countries purely for tax reasons and locate themselves in different places from, from a legal point of view. Um, so I, I think this is significant now because uh, finally, if you like, the, the world is, is adapting to this new form of business, which has been around for a while. But secondly, it's significant because countries, uh, they often find it very difficult to agree on anything. But to agree on tax is really unusual because, as we've mentioned before, countries are really jealous about their ability to tax uh, people and businesses w- w- within their own territories. And in some cases, in the case of the states, they also uh, like to tax people uh, ex- ex- extraterritorially, you know, they, to, to do so globally. So the very fact that so many countries have come together and agreed to do this, I think is, is really significant and, and I think a really good development. Across the board, this is likely to create more wealth for countries. Uh, I think the uh, aim, the goal is that companies, big corporations will pay an extra $100 billion in corporation tax um, across the world, obviously split up between countries. However, for some of the countries which traditionally have low corporation tax. Um, a very key example on our doorstep is Ireland, which uh, which their tax rate currently stands at 12.5%. And obviously, we'll be shifting um, in the transition period with this agreement. Um, they've been able to attract businesses like Google, Apple, Johnson & Johnson to their shores with, uh, with low corporation tax being key to that and obviously generating uh, jobs, income, um, and uh, also a bit more prosperity for the economy at large. Why did they 
do it then? Why were they keen to sign up to this? I know actually Joe Biden wanted possibly 21, even 25% to be agreed upon and Ireland actually negotiated down to 15%. But why would they agree for a higher rate as part of this international agreement? Well, I, I think in answering that, just standing back for, for a moment, it's very easy in these circumstances to blame business, to say that the business uh, moves things around uh, for its own purposes. But the, the truth is that um, all, all business leaders, directors of comp- public companies, they're subject to a duty to maximize profits and minimize costs, including tax. So I've always felt that it's up to governments to change the rules, if you like, to make sure that these things don't happen. Now, in the case of Ireland, I think this is really significant because Ireland has built its economy uh, very much, as you said, Ben, around attracting international businesses by offering them a a low corporate tax rate. That's been key uh, to its economic success. And I think the reason it's done this, and uh, I salute it, is because Ireland has always struck me as being very serious in terms of its commitments to the international community. And I think it's setting a a very good example. And I actually think that um, the impact will be far less great than people might think. And I'm absolutely certain that those in in government there have factored all of this into their decision-making over the, the corporate tax rate, because um, Ireland has built up over, over the last decade or two a lot of financial and legal infrastructure to enable large international corporates to, to locate there. And when you think about it, post-Brexit, it's now the sole English-speaking gateway to Europe. So even though its tax rate might, might go up a bit, it will still be a place where international companies will want to locate if they want to do business in in the EU. So I I think it's been a very finely judged decision by Ireland, but I think a very significant one and and, um, really well thought through as well. Really interesting stuff. And on the flip side, there were four countries out of the 140 that didn't sign up to it, those being Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Nigeria, and Kenya. They all held out and decided not to go for this international agreement. Is that in any way wise? Are there problems down the line, do you think, for these countries if they're not part of this sort of new agreement? No, no, I, I don't think so. Um, with all of these things, especially something that is so new and significant, it takes a while for all participants to, to get on board. And I'm sure each of those countries uh, is dependent in, in, in some respect on um, business from international corporates locating in their jurisdictions. So whether it undermines the the, the, the whole um, attempt, I don't think it will in the slightest. And I'm sure that when they see Ireland's example and they see that actually from its point of view economically, it hasn't suffered as much as one might initially think, I'm, I'm sure that in due course, they'll, they'll probably follow suit. Yep, definitely agree with that, Chris. So one thing that I wanted to pick up from this story and maybe look at the wider picture for it something that i covered at the top of this story was that probably the last five years i'd characterize it by being quite protectionist especially in the trade setting and now here we've got something which is the same sort of people the financial heads the trade heads uh cooperating over something which i think some commentators suggesting was the biggest 
international agreement in in this space for over over a century or or something like that. So, Chris, do you see um, that this could lead to more economic or even trade cooperation after what has potentially been a tricky time? Definitely has been a tricky time um, for cooperation amongst certain areas and certain countries in the world. Absolutely, I do, Ben, because we, we've, we've benefited, the world has benefited from um, 30 years plus of globalization, of sourcing things from all over the world, from people doing business all over the world. And then, uh, you're right, we've had a wave of protectionism, and certainly the pandemic, I think, has made, has made people and businesses feel more insular. So when you've got moves like this, and we're seeing this also on, on the side of climate change as well, you know, with countries like, like China do, doing their bit, I think, it's, I think it's really encouraging. And I think what it means is that although there are general trends and there are geopolitical tensions, there will always be uh, bilateral and multilateral agreements between certain pockets of, of countries. And this is just an example of that writ large, really. So, so yes, I, I see it as a very good sign. Yeah, definitely agree. And I think there has been a little bit of commentary around around this. I think there was a quote from someone at Oxfam that suggested that this tax rate that they set, um, I think the quote is, uh, is let big offenders off the hook. But I think the fact that you've got this cooperation at the moment, um, they've got a solid line in the sand that everyone's agreeing to. And things can change, things can shift up in future. And as you say, Chris, a little bit with the island story, if they see that as a good news story, then everyone will start feeling more comfortable in the future about possibly raising that limit and possibly doing um, greater deals in the tax space, but even increasing that to trade as well, which uh, can only really be hoped for. My final part of this, which is, again, a little bit more wider picture, but down a slightly different uh, path, is you would have possibly been hearing stuff around Pandora Papers. It's not about the high street jewelers or anything like that, but basically there was a, a, a leak of all these uh, sort of documents and, and papers which showed, um, especially of the rich, but often a lot of political leaders, a lot of business leaders, um, and their reliance on um, offshore you know, accounts, um, tax havens, uh, even delving into their property ownership uh, across different countries, including the UK. Do you think stuff like this, and also with the Panama Papers uh, a couple of years ago, has really encouraged the government to take stronger action on taxation systems and make sure that the public are really seeing that they're doing stuff to ensure that, uh, that they're collecting the right amount of tax and people from maybe a sort of a wealthy background aren't able to sort of bend, break the rules? Absolutely. I mean, um, the, the first thing that's worth saying about this is that as far as I can see, a lot of what's discussed in the Pandora Papers isn't actually illegal. Um, you know, it's, it's people uh, are following existing rules and obviously benefiting from it. So I, I think the, the, the first thing is, is there an appetite on the part of governments generally to close these loopholes because they have the power to do that? And I think what's good is that gradually there is a groundswell of opinion that says governments have got to act if they want to close these loopholes. And this is, this is set in a wider context, um, which is that over the last decade, and this has been accentuated by the pandemic, essentially the rich have got richer and the poor have got poorer. And it's reached a point where I think it could actually 
threatened societal structures, you know. So I think this is all to the good. And it may well be that the UK itself wants to reconsider whether it wants to continue to attract some of the sorts of money that it does. But stepping back from this, again, one has to set it in context. Um, I, I'm old enough to remember when uh, low tax jurisdictions had uh, a lot of entrenched bank secrecy. And then over the last 20 to 30 years, they've gradually relaxed that under pressure uh, from uh, uh, governments globally. Uh, and so I see this as part of that trend and it's all to the good. It may be taking longer than some of us would like, but certainly it's absolutely in the right direction. Fantastic, Chris. Really appreciate your opinions on that. Hope you've enjoyed listening to that at home. We're going to move on to our third story. So now on to our third story of this podcast. So we're going to look at the uh, headlines you would have been reading around job vacancies at the moment. So you might have seen that we're currently in the UK at a 20-year high for the number of available jobs, basically jobs that um, are being advertised at the moment. And we're currently on 1.1 million jobs that uh, people, businesses are looking to fill. And you would have read lots of stories, especially around lorry drivers or restaurants, hospitality industry, where we're really struggling to to fill roles. And that's had a lot of media attention. Um, but someone hiring into, into lots of different uh, sectors on a, in a small business and from lots of people I talk to and lots of people that you you hear about, it's it's not just those roles. It's it's kind of across the economy that people are looking to hire. Um, but um, as Chris and me were talking about a little bit before before we uh, uh, got on air with this podcast, um, this idea of kind of uh, a bit of a bottleneck or a temporary bottleneck. Um, Chris, talk to me about it. Talk to me about this bottleneck and. Obviously, it's good that we're generating jobs, but it feels like there's a lot of jobs being generated and they're not being filled quick enough. Exactly. Um, and I, I think it is very much post-pandemic. I mean, in, in general, what economists like to see is uh, full employment, people in work, but at the same time, you need there to be vacancies so that people can move around, you know, so that they, they can move on in order to maximize their skills and, and, and income. So on the face of it, having this many job vacancies could seem quite good, but I, I, I do regard it as a, as a bottleneck. And in fact, Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, he's, he said exactly the same, he, the same thing. He said uh, he, he's got concerns about labor supply growth. But one of the points that he made is that this is affecting some sectors more than others. So it is very uh, sectorally based. So I see it very much as a bottleneck rather than something uh, that is in itself good. But I think it's fairly short term. Amazing. And we were chatting, as, as, as I discussed before, um, about businesses over the last couple of decades becoming leaner. So having less imp- employees kind of hanging about waiting for the work and also businesses being better equipped to predict the staffing that they may need. The pandemic has caused a lot of challenges around that. But do you think there needs to be a different way of thinking about how businesses are staffing and maybe their over-reliance on stuff like the gig economy or temporary workforces 
um, or even shorter term contracts? Well, it's very interesting this because um, you're absolutely right. Big businesses are pretty lean these days. And uh, again, setting this in historical context, um, about 30 or 40 years ago, businesses were, were not like this. They, they, um, they, they had uh, 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 supplies of raw materials, they had inventories of manufactured goods, and they, they, had, they had, in other words, quite large stockpiles. And they did this because in those days, business was very uncertain, pre-internet communications weren't that good. So they had to be prepared for uh, rapid increases in orders, or, or a, a rapid shortage of, of supplies. So businesses tended to have stockpiles of things around. Now, um, what changed was that interest rates went up enormously because when you've got stockpiles of things, this is being funded by, by cash, basically, by, by your working capital. It's, it's not cost-free. If, if you're a car manufacturer and you, you've got, you've got 10,000 cars sitting outside waiting to be sold, that, that, is, that, that represents cash that you need to be receiving, but you haven't received it yet. So, so that's a, a working capital requirement. So what's happened in the meantime is that businesses, uh, uh, first of all, benefited from increased certainty, knowing when they would get sales. Um, and also because of these high interest rates, they ran down their stockpiles, both of raw materials and manufactured goods. And uh, this is epitomized by the whole just-in-time approach to business. So businesses have reached a point now where what economists would say is they're very efficient, but they lack resilience. So when you've got a kind of black swan event, to quote Nassim Nicholas Taleb, which is what the pandemic was, businesses have got no buffer. And, and that's in every aspect of what they do. It's in terms of, of uh, you know, hard inventory and, and also in, in terms of people. Um, and so what economists would say is that increased efficiency removes resilience. And then, of course, you face uh, a, a black swan event like, like the pandemic. And that, that shows when resilience is lacking. So looking at kind of being solution focused rather than problem focused, a lot of companies um, in a classic supply and demand market, they, there's a lot of demand, a lack of supply are increasing um, the wages of certain jobs um, so they're happy to pay more for their staff and obviously either pass it on to the customer or actually take a margin hit um, themselves but my question is is that in attracting staff big corporations are likely to be able to take a larger margin hit at the moment um, and look a little bit more long term with this so for instance amazon um, have recently said that they would pay three thousand pounds as a welcome over golden hello, basically, a, a signing on bonus uh, for new employees. So does this labor shortage actually advantage big companies and create lots of problems for smaller companies? You might think so, but I'm, my view is not necessarily because these big companies, they tend to operate on wafer thin margins. You know, so paying £3,000 to to each new employee, when 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 you add that all up, that's a lot of money that is being removed from their bottom line. Because, of course, being big companies, they need to recruit a lot of people. If I'm a small business and I need one or two people, then I can offer other attractions that a big business can't to the same extent. Flexibility of working, uh, working locally, um, being, being part of a, a smaller environment. There, there are, if you like, non-financial benefits that small businesses can offer. So I don't think that they're being uh, 
or they're losing out to larger businesses. I think larger businesses have got bigger needs. And at the same time, they've, they've, they've probably got um, uh, thinner margins out of which to, to fund these, these uh, golden hellos. I think on a story like this, we can't avoid the term digital skills gap. You probably would have heard um, about it. But basically, as the world has advanced technologically, um, the labor force overall hasn't got the adequate digital skills to take up the roles that they will need to now and also looking ahead into the future. Obviously, lots of stuff has been sped up by the pandemic, so it's hardly surprising that the labour force hasn't been able to catch up in this time. And I think talking of reports from companies, which we mentioned earlier about Morgan Stanley, actually Accenture did one, um, the uh, tech consulting um, firm, that suggested that the digital skill shortage could cost the UK economy uh, $141 billion um, over the next 10 years. I think that report was done a couple of years ago, so over over this decade, um, basically. So, Chris, how important is closing this digital skills gap to the UK economy? First of all, getting more people into work right now, uh, but second of all, looking into the future. Well, I, I think it's crucial because the, the, the UK economy, uh, and you've heard me use this term before, we're, we're we're, we're essentially uh, a collection of know-how businesses. What I think makes the UK stand out is it's our knowledge of how to do things. And that's everything from very specialist engineering through to um, uh, providing the venue for uh, the filming of Hollywood blockbusters. We, we, we have knowledge expertise in many, many different areas. And so you're right, there, there is a, a, a digital skills gap, but I think it's something that we in this country are very well placed to fill. Um, so yes, there is a gap to be filled, but I think it will be filled. Great stuff. And a lot of people that will be listening to this podcast will be either students or graduates. What role do graduates have to play over the coming half a decade, decade, in making the UK economy more competitive? Well, I, I think it's bringing your, your enthusiasm and, and talent to bear. Um, quite often in these situations, it's easy to turn around and blame government and say government should be doing this or that. But I think all government can really do is to provide incentives to encourage businesses to offer the opportunities and, and the training. So I think it's up to business to seize these opportunities, to see that there is a, a very deep talent pool uh, of, of young graduates and professionals to, to recruit from, and then provide them with the training and, and the opportunities. So I, I think uh, in terms of what graduates can do, I think it's being flexible, being prepared to try your hand at, at anything that, that, that comes along, um, which is Basically, what, what I did in my career, I tried lots of different things. Um, and and uh, so just, just being uh, flexible, but being enthusiastic and uh, looking for businesses that will train you up and, and offer you those opportunities to increase your skills. Yeah, I completely agree. Obviously, the work I do at Bright Network uh, is exactly what we're aiming to do, working with all of these, these, these companies. Um, the one thing... I would add to that is 
as a um, as as a graduate, you might look, and it's fantastic that there are more opportunities out there, possibly more opportunities for grads than there has been before, because companies over the pandemic um, maybe cut graduate schemes a bit or cut graduate hiring, and now realizing they've got um, more work to be done than the kind of current grads or the grads that they did have a couple of years ago have moved up to more senior positions. So it's coming in. Um, really, really strong um, at the moment. But that still doesn't mean it's easy to get those jobs. You need to be doing everything you can. Listening stuff, educating yourself, listening to stuff like this is always always a nice, a nice, uh, a, a nice starting point. But making sure you're doing all the research and gaining all the knowledge and making all those connections. Now we can go a little bit more in person um, as well. It's always nice to get out there. I understand that uh, this virtual sort of networking or connecting with people is always a bit more tricky. So definitely, definitely get out there a bit more. I think we're going to leave it there, Chris, because the next story is about all of that application advice, which I think leads on rather beautifully from what we were just talking about. For our final part of this month's episode, we are actually going to do something different. You might have seen that we normally have kind of a fun, slightly different story. We even sometimes have a few kind of audience questions. Do keep sending them in. They will return later in the series. Um, But what we're going to do this week, as I said at the top of the show, is the application or if you've started a job recently special um it doesn't really roll off the tongue but we're going to give you a little bit of advice if you're doing your applications or if you're starting in the in the world of work um from kind of the master himself chris has written uh, books if you don't know already i'm sure loads of you have his books but if you don't definitely get on amazon and uh, search his name but all about uh, the markets all about you know, being commercially aware, why he's so brilliant on these on these podcasts is his wealth of knowledge, which he's uh, popped down on a on, on a book that you should be reading as well as listening to this podcast. So, first of all, Chris, um, what I wanted to ask around this is around impressing employers, whether it be an interview or whether it be in your first month of your career. When it comes to commercial awareness, what do you actually think impresses kind of line managers or more senior people if you're, if you're uh, being interviewed by them? Uh, well, the first thing to say in terms of commercial awareness is that uh, at interview, often employers um, test your commercial awareness by asking you about any story you've seen uh, in the media recently that has attracted your attention, which is why you need to be aware of, of what's going on. But I, I actually think that real commercial awareness is understanding business. I mean, once you're uh, in the workplace, uh, when you are serving clients, uh, they, they like professional advisors who understand their business. And so um, I think the more you can demonstrate that you have an understanding of the business of the people who are interviewing you, the more impressed they're going to be. It's very easy with applications to make them quite generic, but the more you can actually focus on uh, this particular employer, prospective employer, what do they actually do? Uh, What are the keys to their success? What are likely to be the issues that they face? And if you can help to generate a discussion around those sort of things, um, and you've got sufficient knowledge to keep the dialogue going, that's always very, very impressive. And then once you're in in work, uh, 
I think it's the same, the same idea that it's, it's understanding your client and doing whatever you can to make their lives easier. So once you're in work, your first client will be your supervisor. And you should be thinking all the time, what can I do to make their life easier? Um, and if you start to think in those terms, thinking in terms of who is your client, what is it they need, what can you do to help? I think that's a wonderful way, actually, of developing um, whatever technical expertise you, you also need to develop alongside that. But that attitude to helping clients will stand you in enormously good stead throughout your career. Definitely really great advice there, Chris. The one thing I would say about the, the first point that you mentioned around the interview side thing, knowing the issues, knowing everything around the business. I know it sounds really simple, but if you're thinking, how do I start to do that? Hark back to maybe your GCSE business studies. I've got one of those uh, as well, where we did um, sort of SWOT analysis. So strengths, weakness, opportunities, and threats. And it's usually done in a little four quadrant sort of table that you can, you can draw yourself. Um, but really focus on the opportunities and threats within that. So, you know, the threats, what's keeping the CEO or senior leadership up at night, and then also converting that into opportunities, the changing landscape that we're talking about on this podcast, you know, how do these stories actually convert to opportunities for business or potential threats every time you're listening to this it's not just a case of going oh that's that's interesting hopefully you are finding it interesting but also thinking well i want to go into x industry what's that going to mean in the next two to five years for the industry that i'm aiming to be in my second question on this uh chris is around actually just the best piece of advice that you've been given in in your career or a couple of bits of advice um which maybe uh, you can share as you say you've done um, lots of things from working in a law firm to uh, being a journalist to being a poet um, as well. Um, a fantastic. If you do see uh, Chris's commercial awareness books, if you scroll down a little bit on uh, on Amazon, you'll also find a, a poetry book as well. So a breadth of experience, maybe not quite from the poetry side of things, but what's the best bit of advice that you've been given or the best piece of advice? Well, the, the truth is I... I... I was never given any advice whatsoever. In fact, most of what I was told was, oh, don't try that, you know, or, or no, you couldn't possibly think about doing that. So actually, whatever people said, I tended to ignore rather. But, but I, I suppose I've got two pieces of advice, and I admit they are extremely woolly. Um, but the first is nothing is as important as you think it is. When, when you're graduating, you're looking at your first job, you're thinking, you know, I've got to get this right so far. I've worked really hard. I've got these qualifications. I don't want to let myself down. I mustn't make a mistake. I've got to get the decision right. And the answer is, don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. You know, getting the right job is not a life or death decision. The, the great thing these days, I feel, is that whereas in my day, when you graduated, you had to get a job and then you'd be on a track for life. Nowadays, you can spend your 20s trying all sorts of different things, working out what it is you really want to do. So it's, it's not a fundamental decision. Yes, you want to go to a place that's going to train you up and it's, and it's going to be enjoyable to work at, but don't think of it as being the most important decision in your life. It won't be. And, and my other piece of advice, which I admit is also very woolly, is go with your gut feel. It's very tempting to try to turn these decisions into kind of tick boxes, intellectual arguments. Don't, don't do that. If it feels right, if you're interviewed by people that you like, you like the organization, then join it. 
chances are you'll be happy there. If you're happy there, you'll do really well. You may not even want to leave it. So um, I, I, I would say don't worry about trying to get this decision right. It doesn't really matter. And go with your gut feel. I feel like you're giving advice to me uh, as well. I, uh, I'm about to, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate, unfortunately, I think, uh, leave my uh, 20s very, very soon. And uh, um, yeah, I've definitely, definitely worked in a lot of small business. So that advice felt really pertinent to me. So I'm sure if you're uh, at university or just leaving university, it would have been um, really good and um, hopefully gives you a bit of an optimist outlook and um, makes you feel a little bit less worried about that first career or second career choice that you are potentially about to make or already have just made. The final thing, other than listening to the Thinking Commercially podcast and, of course, reading uh, Chris's books, um, what else should people be watching, listening to or reading to boost their commercial awareness right now if they're doing an application or just starting the world of work? Well, I think anything that gives you quick access to the latest business stories with a little bit of analysis. So in my case, because I'm interested in the financial markets in particular, I, I look at the City AM website. City AM is the freebie newspaper that commuters in the city can pick up at stations, but it's also online. And uh, they put out bulletins uh, three times a day. And I find those really useful because they just alert you to what is happening in the financial and business worlds. Um, and then uh, as Ben, you and I were talking about the Economist magazine, the business and finance sections, the Economist comes out every Friday. Um, and then actually, I mean, I don't think one can get away from the Financial Times. I like it as a paper, but you don't have to look at it every day. I mean, the Financial Times at weekends is a very good newspaper with all sorts of things, including arts coverage. Um, so if you can look at the Financial Times at, at weekends, that will give you a, a summary of what's been happening during the week, both in the UK and globally. Yeah, definitely completely agree with City M, especially good if you are applying to roles in London. Obviously, it's a very London-focused paper and also, I think, quite optimistic about um, London as well. And obviously, if you're going into an interview, you don't want to be all doom and gloom and stuff like that. You want to show that positivity um, as, as, as well. Um, yeah, there's a few other bits and pieces. Uh, if you don't want to read the FT, there is the FT Daily uh, podcast, which is about 10 to 15 minutes uh, each morning, which gives, again, about four stories in a little bit less detail uh, than, than us on a daily basis, but give you keep you updated um, on the news as well. I do recommend that. So I'll be posting all of this on the Instagram and LinkedIn pages, or if you search Thinking Commercially into both of those social media websites, you can join or follow the, the groups there or the pages there, um, and you'll find all of these uh, here and also a bit more insight uh, around the stories that we have covered this month. Wow, what an incredible episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. It was fantastic three stories and some really brilliant top tips from Chris right at the end. He really is a fountain of knowledge. Do head to our LinkedIn, do head to our Instagram to find out more. And from me and Chris, have a fantastic month and see you next time. Hold up. 